We are wrapping up the book of Revelation. Um, this is the last Sunday we'll be uh, doing that, um, th that book. Um, <clears throat> it has been fun, uh, but I was very hesitant uh, to take this book on, and there's two primary reasons for that. Um, <clears throat> and they were both about equal. They were both pretty strong. Uh, the first is that there's a lot of misconception about Revelation. And there's a bit of a culture in, in the church, the, at least the evangelical church and the conservative church, that, you know, if you don't agree with something, uh, every single bit of it, you know, you're, you're going to hell in a handbasket, you know, and you're taught uh, things can be pretty rigid, particularly about views of end times and things like that. And so it's hard to deconstruct a lot of that stuff. Uh, some people are very resistant. Um, and I think for years I've been telling people that the message of Revelation is the same as the rest of Scripture. It's an invitation back into this relationship with God. Um, that's, that's the basics of just about any book in the Bible you're going to read. Uh, it's an invitation to return to God and to uh, be faithful in that relationship. Um, but in our culture, um, there's just there's a lot of crazy thoughts about uh, Revelation. And so we've tried to unpack that a little bit, and I think we've done a decent job. Will, I think Will opened us up in that uh, book just after Easter, and he did a great job last week with uh, Revelation 21 and the new heaven and new earth and all things made new and uh, great teaching. Thank you, Will. Um, left me very little to do this week, uh, but just wrap it up. Um, <clears throat> the other thing uh, that I was very hesitant to, to jump into, um, and this one, this one hits home. Um, it's because of the implications for Christians living in a culture that is uh, a world power. The Christians living in the first century under the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was the world, was the world power at that time. Um, and for people living in the Mediterranean world, uh, Rome was the world. Uh, there, there was no kind of vision beyond, uh, you know, what could lie beyond Roman, uh, Roman borders. Um, <clears throat> and so there's two basic messages here. One is that for those Christians who are being persecuted for their faith and are suffering, the, uh, the message is to remain faithful. Um, and for the Christians who are apathetic, who are kind of like, well, this, is, this suffering is too hard, I think, you know, and there's all these good things that are happening with the empire, all this wealth and power and uh, advancement and technological advancing and uh, economic power and all this sort of thing, you know, it can't be all that bad. And so there was this apathy. And um, I've thought for, for many years that uh, this book speaks to American Christianity in particular in our day and age. Um, and there's a lot to learn. Um, I, after reading this, and thinking about where we're going in the next series, I, I, I just, I have this feeling that the faith that we experience in the United States is, um, is kind of watered down compared to 
what people experience around the globe. There are people who are suffering, like the, the churches in, in Revelation. And the struggle is that when you're in a rut as far as uh, how you understand religion and faith and uh, uh, <clears throat> following Christ, it's hard to get out of those ruts. Um, and I think I was not scared to take it on. Um, I, I, quite honestly, I think w what was making me nervous is, you know, the implications for me. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, I, uh, just what is this going to uncover? And uh, what kind of shakedown is the Holy Spirit going to do in my own heart? Amen. Um, and I don't have all the answers. But I think we've done a decent job of unpacking uh, the book of Revelation. Um, it gives us a view into heaven that there's a cosmic battle going on. And the basic message is that God has won and will win this battle. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, be faithful. Because the suffering you're experiencing uh, does not compare to the glory that God has for us. Mm -hmm. And all the wealth and riches that are offered to us in this world do not compare to the glory that God has for us. So um, we did this halfway through. We have uh, our Bible project video, and they cover Revelation in two different videos. So we're going to do a review of the second half of Revelation. It's about an 11-minute video, um, <clears throat> and there's a lot. I mean, you could, you could watch this over and over and over again and not get all the details. And I still believe that I chose... TVs that are just a hair too small. So, um, you can always pull up <laughs> well, yeah. Um, anyway, let's uh, take a let's let's do this. Let's center our hearts and minds and, and, and hear what this book is all about uh, before we leave it completely right now. Go ahead. The revelation of Jesus given to John the prophet. In the first video, we explored how John composed this apocalyptic prophecy as a circular letter to seven churches in Asia Minor to challenge and comfort these Christians who were suffering from apathy and persecution under the Roman Empire. We also encountered John's main symbol for Jesus, the slain lamb, who conquered his enemies by dying for them. He is the one who opens up the scroll containing God's purposes to bring his kingdom on earth as in heaven. The scroll's opening brought warning judgments, like the plagues of Egypt. And like Pharaoh, the nations do not repent. And then John introduced the multi-ethnic army of the Lamb, and the open scroll revealed their strange mission. It's to follow the Lamb by bearing witness to God's justice and mercy before the beastly nations, even as it kills them. And they will conquer the beast by laying down their lives just like the Lamb, and this will move the nations to repentance. In the remainder of the book, John will fill out his portrayal of this beast and his war on God's people and how the whole story ends. After the seven trumpets, John stops the drumbeat of sevens with a series of visions that he calls signs. The word literally means symbols, and these chapters are full of them. These visions explore the message of the open scroll in greater depth. The first one reveals the cosmic spiritual battle that lay behind the suffering of the seven churches under Roman persecution. It's a manifestation of that ancient conflict that began in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, who represents the source of all evil, is depicted here as a dragon. It attacks a woman and her seed. They represent the Messiah and his people. 
Then the Messiah defeats the dragon through his death and resurrection, and it's cast to earth. There, the dragon inspires hatred and persecution of the Messiah's people. But they will conquer the dragon by resisting his influence, even if it kills them. John's trying to show the churches that neither Rome nor any other nation or human is the real enemy. There are dark spiritual powers at work, and Jesus' followers will announce Jesus' victory by remaining faithful and loving their enemies, just like the slain lamb. John's next vision retells the story of the same conflict, but this time in the earthly symbolism of Daniel's animal visions. John sees two beasts empowered by the dragon. One of them represents national military power that conquers through violence. The other beast symbolizes the economic propaganda machine that exalts this power as divine. And these beasts demand full allegiance from the nations, and that's symbolized by taking the mark of the beast and his number, 666, on the forehead or hand. Now, this is an infamous image, and you won't discover its meaning by reading news headlines. John's making a clear Hebrew Old Testament reference here. First of all, this mark is the anti-Shema. The writing on the forehead and hand, it's a clear reference to the Shema, an ancient Jewish prayer of allegiance to God that's found in the book of Deuteronomy. This prayer also was written on the forehead and hand as a symbol of devoting all your thoughts and actions to the one true God. But now the rebellious nations demand their own allegiance and they force everyone to decide who they will follow. Then there's the number of the beast, which has fascinated readers for thousands of years. But this was not a mystery to John. He spoke Hebrew and Greek, and Hebrew letters were also numbers. If you spell the Greek words Nero Caesar and the word beast in Hebrew, each one amounts to 666. Now, John isn't saying that Nero was the only fulfillment of this vision. Nero is just a recent example of the ancient pattern set out by Daniel, that the nations become beasts when they exalt their own power and economic security as a false god and then demand total allegiance. So Babylon was the beast in Daniel's day, but that was followed by Persia, followed by Greece, and now Rome in John's day. And so it goes for any later nation that acts in the same way. Standing opposed to the beastly nations and the dragon is another king. It's the slain lamb. He's with his army who have given their lives to follow him. And from the new Jerusalem, their song of victory goes out to the nations in what John calls the eternal gospel. And they call everyone to repent and to worship God and to come out of Babylon that will fall, its days are numbered. Then John sees a vision of final judgment. It's symbolized by two harvests. One is a good harvest of grain, as King Jesus comes to gather up his faithful people to himself. The other is a harvest of wine grapes. It represents humanity's intoxication with evil. They're taken to the wine press and trampled. Now, throughout all these sign visions, John is placing a stark choice before the seven churches. Will they resist the lure of Babylon and follow the lamb? Or will they follow the beast and suffer its defeat? Now that the choice is clear, John replays a final cycle of seven divine judgments, symbolized as pouring out seven bowls. Now we know from the lamb's scroll and from the sign visions that many among the nations do repent. But as the Exodus plagues are repeated and poured out through the bowls, there are many people who do not repent. They resist and curse God, just like Pharaoh. And so it all leads up to the sixth bowl. As the dragon and the beast, they gather the nations together to make war against God's people in a place called Armageddon. This refers to a plain in northern Israel where many battles were fought by Israel against invading nations. 
And some people think that this sixth bowl refers to an actual future battle. Other people think that it's a metaphor for God's final justice on evil. Either way, John's clearly taken images from the book of Ezekiel about God's battle with God. God was Ezekiel's symbol of the rebellious nations gathered before God to face his justice. And that's what comes in the seventh bowl. It's the fourth and final depiction of the day of the Lord when evil is defeated among the nations once and for all. Now, John has fully unpacked the message of the Lamb's unsealed scroll. And now he goes back to expand on three key themes that he's introduced earlier. The fall of Babylon, the final battle to defeat evil, and the arrival of the new Jerusalem. And each one of these explores the final coming of God's kingdom from a different angle. So first, the fall of Babylon. An angel shows John a stunning woman who's dressed like a queen, but she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs and of all innocent people. She's riding the dragon beast from the sign visions. It's a symbol of the rebellious nations, and she's called Babylon, the prostitute. Now, the detailed symbols of this vision, they would be very clear to John's first readers. He's personifying the military and economic power of the Roman Empire, but he's also doing more. In this vision, John has blended together words and images from every single Old Testament passage about the downfall of ancient Babylon, Tyre, and Edom. John's showing how Rome is simply the newest version of the Old Testament archetype of humanity in rebellion against God. They come together and form nations that exalt their own economic and military security into a false God. This isn't something limited to the past or the future. It's a portrait of the human condition throughout history. And Babylons will come and go, leading up to the day when Jesus returns to replace Babylon with his kingdom. But how will Jesus' kingdom come? Up to this point, the day of the Lord has been depicted as a day of fire or earthquake or harvest. And now it's depicted as a final battle, and it's told twice. It results in the vindication of the martyrs. Now John takes us back to the sixth bowl, where the nations were gathered together to oppose God. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears. He's the great hero. He's the word of God riding on a white horse, and he's ready to conquer the world's evil. But pay attention. He's covered with blood before the battle even begins, and that's because it's his own. And his only weapon is the sword of his mouth. It's an image adapted from Isaiah. John's telling us that Armageddon will not be a bloodbath. Rather, the same Jesus who shed his own blood for his enemies now comes proclaiming justice. He will hold accountable those who refuse to repent of the ways that they participate in the ruin of God's good world. And the destructive hellfire that they've unleashed in God's world justly becomes their own God-appointed destiny. After this, John sees a vision of Jesus' followers who have been murdered by Babylon. And they're brought back to life and they reign with the Messiah for 1,000 years. Then after this, the dragon, who inspired humanity's rebellion against God, rallies the nations of the world together to rebel against God's kingdom. But before God's throne of justice, they all face the consequences of eternal defeat. And so the forces of spiritual evil and everyone who doesn't want to participate in God's kingdom are destroyed. They're given what they want, to exist by themselves and for themselves. And so the dragon and Babylon and all who choose them are eternally quarantined, never again able to corrupt God's new creation. Now, there's a lot of debate about the relationship of the 1,000 years to these two battles. There are some who think it refers to a literal chronological sequence. Jesus' return, followed by a thousand-year kingdom on earth called the millennium, followed by God's final judgment. Other people think that the thousand years are a symbol of Jesus' and the martyr's present victory over spiritual evil, 
and that the two battles depict Jesus' future return from two different angles. Whichever view you take, the main point is clear. When Jesus returns as king, he will deal with evil forever, and he'll vindicate those who have been faithful to him. The book concludes with the final vision of the marriage of heaven and earth. An angel shows John a stunning bride that symbolizes the new creation that has come forever to join God and his covenant. God announces that he's come to live with humanity forever and that he's making all things new. John's vision here is a kaleidoscope of Old Testament promises. This place is a new heavens and earth, a restored creation that's healed of the pain and evil of human history. It's also a new garden of Eden, the paradise of eternal life with God. But it's not simply a return back to the garden. It's a step forward into a new Jerusalem, a great city where human cultures and all their diversity work together in peace and harmony before God. And in the most surprising twist of all, there's no temple building in the new creation because the presence of God and the land that were once limited to the temple now permeate every square inch of the new world. And there's a new humanity there, fulfilling the calling placed on them all the way back on page one of the Bible to rule as God's image, to partner together with God in taking this creation into new and uncharted territory. And so ends John's apocalypse and the epic storyline of the whole Bible. John did not write this book as a secret code for you to decipher the timetable of Jesus' return. It's a symbolic vision that brought hope and challenge to the seven first century churches and every generation of Christians since. It reveals history's pattern and God's promise that every human kingdom eventually becomes Babylon and must be resisted in the power of the slain lamb. But there's a promise that Jesus, who loved and died for this world, will not let Babylon go unchecked. He will return one day to remove evil from his good world and make all things new. And that is a promise that should motivate faithfulness in every generation of God's people until the king returns. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. There's a lot in there. Um, there's... Uh just time after time where I read that and I think, oh, wait, I, hold it. i got to think about that for a second and unpack it. Um, <clears throat> but I hope that it gets us to think about um, <clears throat> how we relate to our world and the empire and the, that we live a part of. I don't think that the answer is to feel guilty about something and then go to some faraway country and suffer in ministry. Um, although God may call people to do that, um, there's an opportunity for us here and now living in this world to um, live out the kingdom of God uh, in Brunswick, Maine, in, in Freeport, in Richmond, in Topsom. Um, and we have uh, a great opportunity and a responsibility as a church to figure out together what that looks like for North Harbor uh, in this time and in this place. Um, I was thinking about that, that issue of the, the Shema and the writing on the hands and the forehead and the idea of allegiance and what are we, uh, what do we align ourselves with? What are we committed to? And it gives us lots to think about on what that is for real. Uh, what, we, what are we committed to? Um, and I was also thinking of that word of uh, apathy, you know, that, that this is addressing Christians who are becoming apathetic. Apathy, uh, when I looked it up, is uh, a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern. 
a lack of interest, enthusiasm, and concern. And what's getting in the way of that concern and that enthusiasm for faith is what culture offers us as far as its ideology, its ideas, its wealth, uh, power, all that sort of thing. And I backed it up a little bit further, and uh, apathy uh, is related to the word pathos, right, which is suffering, a lack of suffering, um, which is the opposite of what Jesus does. He suffers for other people. We don't want a lack of suffering. The idea here is that God will be faithful in the midst of our own suffering. And so we suffer as Jesus suffers. Um, <clears throat> and so there's a lot to think about, right? There's a lot of challenges here. As you read the, the last chapter, chapter 22, there's a lot of warnings. Don't change what I've written. Don't add anything to it. Don't take it away. Um, there's uh, some statements that are uh, kind of you reap what you sow. You know, those who will be evil will be evil. Those who will be good will be good. And then there's this promise. And this gets back to one thing I said earlier about Revelation and the message of every Bible. Let's, let's, or every book in the Bible. Let's pull this up. Right, Revelation 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I love this. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. And here we go. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Which reminds us of Isaiah, who is, has that same message. All who are thirsty, come. And he's speaking, Isaiah is speaking as a prophet in a country that is consumed with its power and its wealth. Let anyone who desires to drink freely come to the water of life, from the water of life. There's always an invitation. God loves us. God wants us to love Him. God wants to be with us. Always. There's always an invitation to come, to turn and to come to Christ who suffers with us, who is not apathetic, but sympathetic, suffers with other people. Sympathetic high priest. Uh, so that is Revelation. Actually, the, the blessing we'll do at the end after the, the whole service are the very last words of this book, and we'll come to that in a, in a minute. But I want to take communion. Um, our reading from the Gospels is from Luke. As we take communion, as we think about suffering with Jesus, who suffered for us, and not being apathetic, but being sympathetic. One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the, the Pharisees. And the people were watching him very closely. We skip down to verse 7. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor? What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you'll be embarrassed. And you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then, 
when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you'll be honored in front of all the other guests. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's a story about um, suffering with. Jesus does this. He has a meal. He takes the bread, breaks it, and says, this is my body. This is what sympathy looks like. This is what suffering with others looks like. He pours out the wine and says, this is my blood. This is what suffering with others looks like. He doesn't exalt himself at that table, but he humbles himself. And so every time we take that, we are reminded of that very powerful symbol. That that's who we are. As we're following Jesus, we take the humble position, not the powerful position. So, let's meditate on that and think about it as we take communion. Uh, Communion will be served um, out in the lobby uh, so that we have room for the backpacks uh, this morning. Um, So, let's take communion as you feel led. We'll lead lead a song. And... um, Tim and Linda will be take, uh, leading, uh, giving communion, serving communion out there in the in the lobby. And if you have uh, kids, go down and get them and bring them up, and we will uh, will bless them as they uh, head off to school. I know Mount Ararat starts tomorrow, Brunswick tomorrow, Richmond's later this week. Uh, so Bath is, next week. Bath is next week. Okay, um, let me pray. God, we thank you uh, for this book. Uh, what a gift to us. Um, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to the very powerful message that you have, that we would have eyes to see our world around us, um, that we would have the wisdom to judge what it offers to us, what it calls us gifts, and uh, that we would be able to, do this, to discern um, truth. What is your truth? And what is our culture's truth? Um, Revelation gives us uh, great and powerful images of world empires and their real fate. I don't believe this is calling us to set our hand against culture, but to serve and find out ways that we can serve and love others as you have already loved us. And bring that message of grace and peace. Bring that same message that we hear in the, in the last verses of the, of the Bible. Come, all who are thirsty, all who are needy, all who need to be clothed, come. That we would be the hands and feet of Christ to serve those uh, to everyone, the powerful and the weak to see their need and to bring them the love uh, that you have shown us. We pray in Jesus' name.